Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine outside, for the wonderful uh, weekend you've given us um, in the fall. Lord, we just pray that, that today, that as we come into your presence in this space, that as we gather as a community, uh, that you meet us here. Or that, we, that, that no matter what we bring through the door, whether it's a heavy heart or, or a joyous one, that, that, that you meet us in that space and we can experience your presence. God, now as we, we approach your word, as we open your scriptures, Lord, we pray that, that they aren't just words written on a page thousands of years ago, but are alive because you speak to each of, them, each of us through them. Convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and ultimately, may we leave this place with a deeper love for you so that we can express that through a deeper love for each other. Amen. So if you've been with us at all in 2020. Two, you know that we have been slowly working through the book of Matthew, and we plan to do that till the, through the end of the year. Um, we've seen how we've seen a lot of things in Matthew already. We've seen how Jesus has declared this new kingdom coming. Uh, the, the, kind of the theme, the baseline that we've used uh, to help us understand how Jesus interacts with us in Matthew is his opening line of preaching in the book of Matthew, uh, which hopefully you all know by now, which is Jesus' first words of preaching in the book of Matthew are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. We've talked about how that's the, one of the key components of understanding what Matthew is all about is this declaration that there's this kingdom life available to all of us that's all around us if we only have eyes to see it and are willing to move forward towards it. We talked about how repentance isn't like the guy standing on a soapbox yelling at you, repent or else, but instead an invitation to turn. All, all the word repent means in Hebrew, it's teshuv, is to turn. You're heading in one direction, now turn a different way. So Jesus' declaration is there's this kingdom life all around us, and if you're missing it, turn back towards it. It's a beautiful invitation, not a condemnation. Jesus then goes on to teach us what that means. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Here, the king, there are certain things that we do that are compatible with the kingdom life, that bring us into experiencing it more and more, and certain things that don't. And he kind of helps us walk that through uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We, we've then seen him uh, continue to bring the kingdom to earth, right? If you actually look at what Jesus does throughout his ministry life, over and over and over again, he actually resets Eden, if you think about that. So what happens at the fall, right? That the, Our relationship with God is broken, and Jesus teaches us how to restore that. Our relationship with nature is broken, and Jesus often is showing us that, whether it's calming a storm or healing our bodies, our relationship with each other is broken, and he teaches us how to restore that as well. As Jesus walks on this earth, he actually puts things back to the way they ought to have been. And then finally, we've moved into this last little bit here. For the first 20 chapters of Matthew, first 19 chapters of Matthew, we look at from birth till about 30 years of Jesus' life. We have this rather quick movement through all of that time, but then the final 10 chapters in the book of Matthew actually only cover a week of Jesus' life, the final week. We call it Passion Week. It's, it, it's when things start to get tense. They kind of build uh, into this kind of intensity that ultimately ends with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. We started this series, which we've been calling Authority and Power, by talking about the triumphal entry, the time that Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. If you were here with us that week, uh, we showed how, that, how Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem from the east, while Pilate is riding in from the west. 
Both of them are riding into Jerusalem during the time of Passover, where Jews from all over the region are gathering. But Pilate comes in with an entire army. He comes in dressed in his best armor. He comes with banners and trumpets. He comes with a whole legion of soldiers behind him, clearly showing, I am in charge, I am powerful, and this is how we express that. Contrasted to the way Jesus comes in on a donkey, which is not a battle horse at all, right? Comes in a totally different kind of way. We also talked about how Jesus is contrasted to the Maccabean Revolution. This Jesus riding into the city is beginning this next phase of what the kingdom looks like. Similar to when the Maccabees in the time of the Greeks expelled the Romans and Romans or the Greeks, I'm sorry, and set up a new uh, government in that way. But Jesus doesn't come to, to, to overthrow Rome. He comes to challenge a different kind of authority, which we saw last week. So if you're here with us last week, we saw that the first thing Jesus does after entering into the city of Jerusalem is he goes straight for the temple. And when he gets there, he gets really angry. Uh, Chuck, if you could throw up that next picture. If you remember what was going on, this is a artist rendition of what the temple would look like. That outer court there was the court designated for the Gentiles and for people who are sick or hurting. It was supposed to be a place for the least of these, the marginalized people. And what we saw in our passage last week is that what it had become was a place where they were being exploited, where, where, where stalls had been set up to sell animals and to exchange money, and they were taking advantage of the, so one, they were taking the space of those who were the most hurting, and second, then they were exploiting them. And that was something Jesus couldn't handle. The place that's supposed to represent God to the world, because that's what ancient temples did, this was that most people believed this was the actual house of your God, that this is where he lived, it's where he was represented. In that space, God was being represented as someone who exploits the marginalized. And that flips Jesus out. And in turn, he flips some tables. We went on from there to talk about how, uh, how, he, how G- when Jesus is walking out of the city, he comes near a fig tree. That's a weird story than when he curses the fig tree and it dies, right? If you were here this last week too quickly, a fig is one of the seven uh, promised blessings of the land of Israel. God's, when he says you're going to go into a land filling with milk and honey, he said there are going to be seven crops that will be the thing that, is your, that represents your flourishing. One of those seven crops is figs. And so for the fig tree in a region that's known for producing figs is not producing figs. It's a sign of, of that promise failing. And so it's a, the metaphor is that the mission that had been given to Israel, the flourishing that they were supposed to experience, they weren't. And as a result, that mission was going to be taken from them. And then finally last week, we, we, we closed with talking about the power of faith in this new kingdom. Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith even the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, oh, jump into the sea and it will. Which, again, had more meaning attached to it than we get at first glance. Because when Jesus says that mountain, nobody that was listening to him have any doubt about which mountain he was talking about. Because near the space where he said it, it was, was this. This is artist's rendition of something known as the Herodian. Actually, if you go to the next slide, this is what it looks like in real life now. We talked about how Herod wanted to build a, Herod the Great wanted to build a palace outside of Jerusalem but couldn't find a mountain suitable for it, so he just built his own. It's kind of what Herod did. He built his own mountain and then built a massive fortress on top of it. 
using slave labor. A lot of people died in the process. It was, it was pretty terrible as he built it, but it was a sign of his power and authority. We even talked about last week that the archaeologist that was trying, sorry, after he builds his palace, he uses it for a couple years, decides he doesn't like it anymore, and then decides to make it his tomb. So what he does is he builds a, a, a mausoleum to himself there and then buries the entire fortress, right? Making it essentially a pyramid, right? Another monument to his death. The archaeologist that was, that was trying to find his, his resting place, his final resting place, had spent 20 years ex- excavating this site and couldn't find it. Until finally one day somebody says to him, if you were Herod, where would you put your mausoleum? And he says, I would draw a straight line from Jerusalem to here, overlooking the trade route that goes beneath, and I would build my mausoleum there so that Israel always knows that even though I'm dead, I'm still watching over them. It's kind of a guy Herod was. So anyway, they dug in that spot, and guess what they found? They found him, right? That's where he was. Crazy. So when Jesus says, you can tell that mountain to jump into the sea, and it will, he's talking about this. The, a, a literal monument built by Herod to, to show his power and authority over Israel. And he says, that, as impressive as that is, someone who built a mountain and then a fortress on top of it, is absolutely nothing compared to the power of faith. As Jesus do, does those teachings, we can start to feel in this last week of his life tension building, can't we? And we realize that these, these, as we continue to slowly work through Matthew, that tension is going to continue to build. It builds so much so that eventually the Pharisees and the Sadducees decide they can't let him live anymore and they're going to kill him. Today we're going to move, into, we're going to move deeper into that tension. We're going to remember the things that we just talked about and then push into a new space. The things we're going to look at today aren't easy to hear. I'll just admit that right out of the gate. And we might get a few more of those as we move through. These are passages that are tough to teach, but we committed when we started Matthew not to skip things like this. Now, the temptation that we're going to all have as as we listen to the message today is try to apply lenses to it. We're talking about Jesus challenging the authority structures that exist. And whenever we talk about Jesus challenging authority structures that exist, it's easy for our mind to jump into our own authority structures, isn't it? We can easily apply whatever political lens we might have to what we're talking about here. I want to really encourage you. My intention was not to make any kind of political statement today at all. I think I did an okay job of that. In case I didn't, uh, I'm sorry, and try your best to keep those lenses out as well. At the same time, Jesus has really hard things to say to those who are in charge, and we'll see that today. And so I'd also encourage you to do your best to just try to hear them and see what they might speak to you today. The things that Jesus says in this space, we, it's easy for us often to just think of Jesus as a, a person who is loving and caring and, and never really pushes people or rubs people the wrong way. For a lot of his life, that is true. And actually, the only people that he really ticks off and really challenges are those who consider themselves to have power or authority. Everyone else he meets with a gentle, soft hand. And so Jesus is now riding into the city, and the, his, what, his actions at the temple have not made him the favorite person of the religious institution at the time. And so they start to they come after him. And this week, we're going to look at the first of their challenges. They actually challenge him three different times as he's in Jerusalem in this, in this, uh, in this section. But today, we're going to tackle just one. 
And it's in Matthew 21. So if you've got a Bible and want to follow along, it's in Matthew 21, starting at verse 23. It says this. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Remember, this is right after he, this is the short, very shortly, probably the day after he flipped the tables. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They, being the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, they discussed it among themselves and said, If we say it's from heaven, he will ask, Well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold, jo- they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. Now, we're not going to actually camp in this section very long today, but I didn't want to skip it either. Um, because this story, like I said, happens right after the one we looked at last week. So Jesus has just overturned the tables. Uh, it just made the declaration on the fig tree and the mountain. And so, uh, and now he goes back into the temple after all that has happened. And as he walks in, the religious leaders are ready for him this time. Right? We saw you flip our tables, and so they ask him, who gives you the right to do that? Who gave you the right to come in here and, cleanse, or to, and to do the things that you did? And so, and they have a battle of wits in which Jesus comes out on top. Now, really what I want to point out in this section, though, is I want us to notice a couple things before we move on. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus is ex- exposed a practice that they were doing that was contrary to what the temple was supposed to be doing. We actually mentioned that the fact that there were animals being sold there at all was not a bad thing. The people needed to travel and offer a blemish-free offering, and so what that structure was originally intended to do was create a space to buy a blemish-free offering. It was actually supposed to be a service offered to the people to help them honor God and the purity of the temple. The, the money was the same thing. That they didn't, they, that the money ex- exchanging Roman co- currency for, uh, for um, temple currency uh, was supposed to keep was supposed to be to maintain the purity of the temple. You didn't want to use a coin with the, with, the, with the face of the emperor who has declared himself to be God in the temple. And so they offered you this place to change it up a little bit. Now, like we mentioned last week, though, we, in, in our excavations around the Temple Mount, we realized that right outside was where that market was supposed to be. So the, the actual exchanges themselves weren't the issue. The fact was that they were inside the temple that was, which means that the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew the thing that they were doing was not actually accomplishing the purpose it was supposed to. They knew they were in the wrong. It's safe to assume that the tables that were flipped were not put back. Jesus goes back into the temple courts. It doesn't have an incident this time, meaning that once he cleared all of that space, they didn't put it back. They didn't believe what they were doing was right. They knew they had been exposed as doing something wrong, so they didn't reset it. Now, the reason I think that's important is because in my personal interactions, at least in the, in the way that I've experienced the world in this way, I think the way that someone responds to having something exposed as wrong says a lot about their heart on the matter. What I mean by that is the, the response that we give to that oh crap moment, you might know what I'm talking about, right? You're doing something, and then you, somebody catches you in that, and you're like, oh crap, right? 
The response to that moment matters. It says a lot. See, because the human mind is incredibly good at creating false justifications, isn't it? That when we've got, that there, there probably are a number of us, maybe all of us, that know that there are things in our life at one point or another that aren't the best for us, that might even be wrong. We keep them secret, don't we? We, do, we keep them secret on purpose because we don't want anyone to find out about them. Because we know if they did, they, we'd, they, we'd be wrong, right? But what do we do inside our own minds when we're doing that? We start to tell ourselves a story about how it's not as nearly as bad as whatever other people will perceive it to be, right? Okay, I'm doing this thing. I guess it's not the best, but it really isn't that big of a deal. I still wouldn't like anyone to find out about it, but there's this, there's this circumstance and this circumstance and this circumstance, so it's, it's fine, yeah. If you've ever had a moment where you've been doing that for a while and then been caught in that oh crap moment, oh no, I've been exposed, you really get two reactions. You have an opportunity in this space to do one of two different things. You have an option of doubling down, of telling the other person they're wrong. You see that if, if somebody's caught cheating, somebody found their text messages, one of the responses is to be, what were you doing in my phone? Like, that makes what you were doing any better. Right? You did this thing, so my thing wasn't so bad. And people double down and relationships can get broken. Right? We've seen that. There's a number of different variations that we can do there. Or the other response is to own it. Just actually see it for what it was, which is often incredibly difficult because it, when we've done the internal justification, when it actually gets brought out into the light, we realize, wow, that is way grosser than I thought it was. And so to feel that weight and actually do something with it is tough. But that's the other option. It's the option of healing. I actually think that's why Jesus calls us to confession. Because what confession does, it's not for God. You don't need to confess anything so that he knows something. He already does. What confession does is it takes that thing that we've been hiding in secret, that we've internally justified as not being so bad, and it pulls it out into the open, and we go, yuck, to experience forgiveness. So if those are the two options that we have, to either double down and to either make it about something else or tell all the reasons why the things that we did were okay, or own it and make it better, what do we see in this story? It's very clear they're not owning it, are they? Extenuating circumstances seem to suggest they understood what they did was wrong, and their response is to double down, is to go the route of, let's make this about something else. What authority do you have? You checked my phone to clear this temple, right? Their hearts clearly haven't been changed. They're not trying to work with Jesus to fix things. They've decided to make it about something else and not deal with what they've been doing. Hold on to that for a second. Because from that interaction, Jesus then goes on to share a parable. There is actually, we're going to look at two different parables, so I'm going to actually go through the first parable quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He begins with a parable about two sons. He says there's a father and two sons. He asked, he asked both of these two sons to do work for him. He says, I need you guys to go work in the field. One of the sons says, okay, I will. 
and then decides he'd rather watch TV, sits on the couch, and just relaxes for a bit, doesn't do the work. The other son says, I absolutely will not go. But as the day goes on, he goes, I'm kind of a jerk. I better get out there and work. And he does. And so Jesus asks them, which one did the right thing? Where the Pharisees have to to answer was the second son. That parable is actually directly related to the fig tree analogy we talked with last week. In this parable, Jesus is saying, Israel, you have said that you are going to accomplish the mission I've given you, and then not. Whereas now others are picking up that mantle when they originally refused and are now doing it. We taught that lesson last week. That's why we're going to skip over it today. What I want to look at in a lot more detail today is the parable that comes right after it, starting in Matthew 21, 33, which says this. Listen to another parable. There was a good landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a watchtower. He then rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is their heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they, th- so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they said, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So it's kind of a strange parable again. And there are a few things I want us to pay attention to as we're kind of wrestling with what this means. So what we have is a person who owns a field, and he wants that field to produce, so he rents it out, which is a very common practice at the time, right? Most people were not landowners, but the ones that were would hire people to work in the fields. It is a, a completely common and normal economic practice, right? So you hire people, uh, they work in the fields, they get paid for doing that, uh, and then at the end of the, at the, end of the season, uh, the landowner will come and collect the profit. It's no, not, not different than any other business we run today, right? You hire employees, they do their work, they get paid, and the owner gets the rest, right? It's a, uh, it's a classic employee-employer relationship um, that would have been designated by a contract, right? So that at the beginning of the season, you guys are going to work for this amount of money, they agree, and at the end, I'll get this. That's how it works. So what we have here is at the end of the season, the landowner sends some of his servants to collect uh, the harvest as per their agreement. He's doing exactly what he should be doing. But when the tenants see the people coming to collect, they decide they don't want to pay. They don't want to honor the agreement that they entered into. And so they beat up the first one, sending a message to the landowner. They send someone else, and they kill that person, and they stone another. It's just a pretty messed up situation. So finally, the landowner sends his son, thinking surely they'll respect him. But they don't, and they end up throwing him out and killing him as well. When I read through that, a few questions jump out at me. The first one is, why in the world does the landowner keep sending people? Right? 
The first guy comes back beaten, not killed, so he knows what's going on, at least a little. Like, he knows something's not right. And then, people, then, then, a, then the whole group of them doesn't come back because the other ones are killed. So why would he send his son at all, would you? I've always wondered that. I wouldn't, right? What would, what would usually happen in this particular situation? I don't think it would have gone down like that in a normal situation. In fact, the fact that the landowner has hired workers at all for the field says, uh, and he's not there, means that he's a fairly wealthy and powerful person. He has more than one field. He's clearly more powerful than the few farmers. So what we would think would happen is after the first guy comes back beat up, you realize something's wrong there, and you're going to gather a, a, a group of people, some strong people, probably armed people, to go figure out what happened and dole out some consequences. There's a reason that this doesn't happen very often, and it's because your response, if, if you were a tenant, a farmer, somebody who didn't own their own land, who had to work someone else's land, who didn't have resources for all of that, you wouldn't dare beat up your, the landowner's servants because you know he'd come back armed and you'd be dead. That's how it would work, but that's not how it works here. He doesn't do that. He actually assumes the best of them for some reason. He gives them the benefit of the doubt all the way to the point of sending him son. Maybe they didn't think these were my people. Maybe they thought they were defending the field or something. Maybe they just didn't understand the agreement that we had. So we'll give it a second shot. Who knows? I'm not sure exactly what the process that he was going through was, but he does give them the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't come and wipe them out which says a lot about the good landowner, who obviously is representing God in this situation. But the second question that I've always had about this parable is, what is the tenant's endgame here? They're, they're working in another person's field. They're strongly, like we said, suggesting they don't have they own, their own. They're not powerful people. They don't have resources or power. They have to have... So, they have they have someone else's field, and that's about it. So how did they think this was going to end? There's a line in the parable that gives us a lot of insight to what they had to have been thinking. When they see the sun ride up, they said, this is the heir, so if we kill him, we'll get the inheritance. Which, if you slow down to think about it, is a completely nonsensical argument, isn't it? because that's not how inheritances work. Right? The son isn't walking up with a piece of paper that says inheritance, and if you have that, then it's yours now, right? That's not how that works. If the landowner is alive, which we know he is, then who gets to actually give out the inheritance? The landowner, right? Not the son. His, his death does not then automatically make the people who kill him get his inheritance. So what is going on then? The only thing that makes sense is that the tenants have, believed, have begun to believe that the field is theirs, that they have a right to keep it, and in the process have forgotten the landowner entirely. It's the only thing that makes sense. They see the son, if we kill him, it's ours, which means they don't think about the fact that the landowner is still alive that he still has authority and power over the land that he's given to them. They've forgotten the power dynamic that's at play here. 
They were temporarily given control of a field, and now they believe they can keep it. And so they eliminate anyone who gets in their way. As we've already said, last week we looked at a series of stories, of, or we looked at a story about the cleansing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree. We saw that Israel had been called to produce fruit, that they had been given a mission. And as a result of them not accomplishing that mission, it would be taken from them. This week, we're still in that vein. We're still talking about those things. We actually saw that in the parable right before this. But this parable is speaking into why they failed their mission. Maybe in the past you've heard of Israel referred to as God's chosen people, yeah? Why, is, why are they called that? It all hinges on, uh, on the promises, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we actually see that in Genesis 12. Let's throw up the next slide there. If you want to understand Israel's mission in the Old Testament, it is entirely related to this passage here. This is, this is the mission that God gives to Israel. It says, The Lord has said to Abraham, Go for your country and the people... Your, uh, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And it says, I will make you into a na- great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So the promise, the, the, this, this mission of Israel begins with God's promise. We've talked about this here at Harbor Life before, but a good refresher is always good. As it, the first few lines of this particular covenant are all promise. God is saying, I will do these things. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then the tone shifts. We move into the imperative. And you will be a blessing. I've I've referred to it jokingly before that God says, I will be with you in a special way, Israel. You are my chosen people in that way. And because I'm with you in a special way, you have a responsibility that others don't. I will bless you and you will bless other people. I called it, jokingly, the Spider-Man clause of the Bible. With great power comes great responsibility. That'll help you all remember it, right? The mission of Israel was always that. that you're going to get this special interaction with God. I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm actually, the promises in the end of Deuteronomy are amazing because they actually also restore Eden. God says, if you follow me, if you keep my commands, you're going to have rain in season. You're going to greatly increase in number. Your your crops and your animals will all explode. There are lots of them. God actually says that you will never lose a battle, so much so that people will actually stop fighting you. Sounds a lot like Eden, doesn't it? God essentially says, if you keep my commands, we're going to restore Eden here on earth. Then you'll be a light on a hill attracting the entire world to you. You get a special blessing. You get a special field. You get land. I need you to work that land so that it can produce fruit for everyone else around you. Now, the problem is that, that in, this, in this particular blessing, then they are, they're called God's chosen people. They, they realize we've been given a special blessing. But God very clearly here and all throughout the Old Testament said that special blessing is given to you for the sake of everyone else, right? What Israel begins to believe, like the tenants in the field, is that this blessing was given to us because we're great. This blessing was given to us because we're awesome, because it's about us. This land is ours, and we get to thrive in it. And anyone who gets in our way, we get to cut down. 
What happens throughout the Old Testament is that Israel forgot why they were what they were. They, had forgotten, uh, they, they forgot that they had their land because it was given to them. Not for their sake, but for the sake of those that they would bless. They had come to believe that what they had was theirs to keep. <clears throat> and so they fought to keep it. They forgot about the landowner, and as a result, things got really messed up. We see that in the first interaction. That even when it's exposed that they hadn't been doing things the way they ought to, their response was not to then make it right, but to double down to try to keep their authority. I wonder if we sometimes fall into that same trap. If we begin to believe that our churches are ours, and so we build them to meet our need, to, meet, to make us comfortable, and as a result, we've forgotten why we gather in the first place. Do we gather, do we gather to challenge each other with what, or with what God might be saying to us? Or do we just move around to find a place that tells us what we want to hear? Do we, wait, do we work hard to make sure those who the rest of the world has rejected find love in our spaces? Or would we rather make sure we're just comfortable? Is our primary focus on producing the fruit that God has asked us to, in other words, are we working for the kingdom? Or have we forgotten the landowner too? I don't know the answer. I think in some ways we probably have done some of those things, in other ways maybe not. Each of us individually in different ways. It's the challenge that Jesus was giving to the religious leaders. It's heavy. We're in a heavy section of Matthew. Actually, the parable right after this one is the parable of the wedding banquet, where those who were invited end up being kept out of experiencing the kingdom. We don't like hearing these things. I don't like preaching them. But, like I said at the beginning, we made a commitment to going through Matthew and not skipping hard passages like this. Often Jesus' words are tough, convicting, and that's the case here. We've already said it, but it's easy to forget that the things that Jesus said made the religious folks of his day so uncomfortable they felt like they needed to kill him. And look at how our passage ends, Matthew 21, 43. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but anyone, whom it falls will be, and, but anyone on whom it will be fall, falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So I want to close in this way. The words of Jesus can be hard and be difficult to wrestle with. That's true. And the closer we desire to follow Jesus, the harder those words become for us. Because the, the more we desire to make our lives like Jesus, the more we realize there's stuff in there that we need to get out. Which is why I want to make a few things really clear. First, 
Jesus is speaking to people who consider themselves religious. He's speaking to religious leaders. And that matters a lot in this particular case. These are people who have claimed a relationship with God, which comes with a a responsibility then to represent God well to the world. These people have been given authority and power, and they've misused it. And so it's being taken from them. This is very different than salvation. Jesus' harshest words are delivered to those who consider themselves religious leaders in one way or another. Everyone else he's speaking to, people who are searching or hurting or don't know how they fit within the church structure, his words are gentle, they're they're caring, they're they're soft in those spaces. Because he says to those who who are going to declare themselves to be religious authorities in the world, that responsibility then is huge. Because the closer, the more you, more, more, um, prominence you have within the church, the more people will look at you and see how you represent God. We mentioned last week, the number one metaphor in, in, in Scripture for the church is that we are the body of Christ, right? That each of our parts together are the body of Christ, Christ being the head and the rest of us being different pieces. The reason that metaphor is used is because we are supposed to see that when we're out in the world speaking on God's behalf, what they see then is Christ's body, They see him, that we represent who God is to the rest of the world. And so Jesus reserves his harshest words for those who put themselves in that place to say, if you are going to claim to be that, you better represent me well. And if you don't, that's a problem. Jesus' words here are reserved for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because if we're going to call ourselves that, we represent to the world a little bit of who Jesus is and that there's a responsibility that comes with that. Now, if you're here this morning just starting to explore who Jesus is, then these words aren't for you. Your words are, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I want to be with you. I want you to experience all the good things that come from knowing who I am. When Jesus gets in Jerusalem and speaks the harsh words to the religious leaders, they want to kill him. But what we see everywhere else in his life is when he's speaking to the crowds, to those who are marginalized, who don't know how they fit inside the religious structure, what happens? Crowds of people come to him. His message is compelling to those who don't believe that their authority is the thing that's the ultimate. To the people who remember there is a landowner, his words are words of hope and joy. For those who've forgotten the landowner, they're challenging their authority, they're threatening, and they're dangerous. If we want to bring people, if we want to be people who bring others to Jesus, if we want to be faith leaders, and I hope many of us do, we need to take these words seriously. We said it last week, there is power available to you in faith, power to move mountains, the Herodian. It's available to you, and if you want to take it, you've got to remember who gave it to you and why. It's for the, that, that God, God wants to work through you in power as long as you remember that the power you're given is for the sake of everyone else. 
And so our big question today is all of us in certain areas of our life have been given authority and power in one way or another. And so the question we ask ourselves then is how are you using that? Are you using it to maintain your control? Are you using it to your own advantage, to advance your own agenda? Are you keeping your field for yourself? Have you forgotten the landowner and think, you, think what you have is yours? Or do you realize that everything that you have been given, everything you have been blessed with, has been given to you for the sake of advancing the kingdom here on earth? Friends, if we could even, get, even grasp the smallest kernel of truth in that, if the church could realize that the mission they have been given is for the sake of everyone else outside of them, can you even imagine the kind of impact we'd have? If we refuse to protect our own, but let God do that instead, and instead just invited the world into that space. If we refuse to use the power and authority that we've been given for our own advancement, but, but to advocate on the sake, for the sake of those who are hurting. That's the good news of the gospel, and every time the church has done that, it's been unstoppable. I'll close with this passage. In the book of Philippians, Paul says that in everything you do, be like Christ, and then goes on beautifully to explain what that looks like. Jesus, being, having equality with God, did not consider it something to be grasped or retained. In other words, the, the image that they give in Greek is actually something to be held onto in your fist. Did not consider equality with God something to be retained, but instead made himself nothing. And as a result of that, it says, Jesus didn't need to protect his own authority. He did not need to protect his own godness. He didn't need to protect any of that. He actually let it all go for the sake of everyone else around him. His very life he let go. And the beauty of that passage is that at the end is because of that, by humbling himself, not for, not for using his authority for the sake of everyone else, he says, then he was glorified to the highest place, that his name may be above all other names. Paul is saying that's the model for authority and power. That, that, giving, that actually letting it go produces a glorification beyond anything else that we can imagine. So are we willing to do that? Will you pray with me? Father God, we just we want to begin by just recognizing that so often in our lives, the power or authority we've been given or granted, whether it's collectively as a church or individually in our own lives, we've misused for our own sake. That we've forgotten the landowner in so many different cases, believed what we have is ours for our own sake. God, we want to just acknowledge that, confess it, see it for what it is, get rid of those internal justifications we may have been using to make it be okay. And then we want to walk with you to make it better. God, may we be people who lead humbly, Lead in a way 
that does not consider our authority something to be retained, but instead releases it to become nothing for the sake of those around us. God, we can't do it without your spirit. We can't do it without your help. We can't do it without remembering that ultimately that you are the landowner that gave gave it to us in the first place. So we pray that you walk with each of us. Amen.